Thanks for listening to Art and Family, or as I like to say in Dutch, tussen kunst en kind. My name is Myrthe Behansen, and I'm a writer, artist, and policy advisor. In this podcast, I speak to idealists about family, for anyone questioning the status quo and wanting change, from the art world to the nuclear family, and from patriarchy to ableism fleshing out the friction between concepts of private, personal, and public political life. In a time of doxing and political hijacking of identity and emancipation movements, this is Between Art and Family. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am talking to Sophie Lewis, a German-British academic and self-acclaimed communist writer known for her theoretical ideas of family abolition and the use of surrogacy on a societal scale. Her first book was Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against the Family, published in 2019, followed by Abolish the Family, a Manifesto for Care and Liberation, in 2022. Lewis works as a teacher of queer and trans feminism at the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research in New York. While our personal perspective on active motherhood diverge, Lewis speaks as a child of a mother, while I'll grapple with the dual role of being a mother to a child and a child to a mother. In line with Sophie Lewis, I acknowledge the need to replace the nuclear family, as feminists in the 60s and 70s already emphasized, due to its contribution to oppression, exploitation, and exclusion. But my personal challenge lies in translating the theories proposed by radical feminists and family abolitionists into practical actions. How can I distance myself from the compelling notion of the nuclear family while still nurturing a family in reality? How can I bridge the gap between theory and practice? How can we? Stay tuned. Thank you for joining me in this conversation. It's a pleasure to be here. I wanted to talk about your work in abolishing the family. And as I briefly mentioned, I'm writing a book at the moment on the politicalization of motherhood. And I was wondering how could abolishing the family enrich our lives to get straight into it? <laughs> well, the politics of motherhood complex. There's a uh... Sorry, that's a ridiculous way to start. <laughs> I think your question is so broad. How can abolishing the family enrich our lives? I was trying to link it to the uh, the question of motherhood specifically. The concept I find quite useful from the history of sort of radical um, social reproduction militancy is the simple concept of patriarchal motherhood, right? Sometimes people are not even used to seeing those two words together because there's an assumption that motherhood as an institution, um, even as an experience, which is so naturalized as, uh, you know, as a sort of almost property form, has some kind of purely, you know, victimized status within patriarchy or cannot be held responsible in and of itself for the sort of oppressions and dominations of the privatized capitalist world you know i think it's really useful to simply reason out logically that under white supremacist colonial patriarchal capitalism you know the institutions of reproduction are going to reflect those logics and that includes very much motherhood right so it's helpful to disambiguate as adrienne rich famously did um motherhood 
and the labors of Mother Ring. I generally sort of espouse a a Marxian or Marx-influenced perspective that labor is a, a potentially more open, fluid, dynamic, potentially insurgent kind of rubric. And when, when we focus on labor, right, we see that not all of the labors of mothering are being channeled efficiently into the institution of motherhood. So mothering is a more sort of open-ended kind of category. And not not everything mothers do is emancipatory. On the contrary, in fact, a lot of the most sort of reactionary elements of history from uh, segregation activism in the US to uh, imperialism have been actually brought forward by eugenicist maternalists sometimes. This is not really an answer to your first question, but I think I'm getting there. So I think one way I was trying to answer your question is to say that abolition of the family would also be the sort of transcendence of patriarchal motherhood as a an institution and a container, almost like a disciplinary cage for the much more open-ended labors of mothering. So, you know, the famous phrase of Adrian Rich is sort of mothering against motherhood. So the the way that it would sort of benefit us um, to exist in a world in which care is not privatized would be that the challenges and the difficulties and the traumas, but all of those sorts of burdens and pleasures and joys associated with, you know, intergenerational care in the present would have an opportunity to reach their maybe most joyful and pleasurable state because then the distribution of them would be more equal. There would be no blackmail enforcing ridiculous quantities of effort in the sort of relation between one adult and one child. There would be a sort of abundance to fall back on that could be relied on outside of the sort of parental relation. And, you know, I have been sort of orienting my thoughts a little bit towards the care of children in answering your question. But to be honest, you know, all of us require care our whole lives long. And there are very specific care needs that differently abled people need. People with histories of abuse and trauma need. uh, Elderly, chronically ill people need. You know, the uh, part of what I was getting at in my first book, Full Surrogacy Now, is the idea that care really needs to be put at the center of society in a way that goes beyond those sorts of vertical understandings intergenerationally and uh, have a chance to sort of expand and proliferate almost like rhizomatically so that the already latent reality that we are all the makers of one another now, but in a colonial class stratified way, right? When we say full surrogacy now, what I'm thinking of is a real, an actualization of that latent sort of interdependence of care that binds us um, in such a way that we act like we are the makers of one another and we learn to face that really quite uncomfortable fact to some extent. Like, it's not comfortable really to recognize how intimately dependent on each other we are. <laughs> I think the neoliberal mindset is very much dedicated towards denying, providing opportunities to distance ourselves from that realization and from that knowledge. So it would benefit us, I think, to exist in a world in which care had been democratized.
What I really like what you're talking about now is also this idea of expanding so the idea of care and kinship also beyond the nuclear family or beyond the family structures as we've known it. Mm-hmm. I was wondering, the critique of the family is is at least at, as old as the critique of capitalism, I would say, or maybe even before that. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking like already Marx and, and, and Friedrich Engels noted in their Communist Manifesto that under capitalism, women will remain degraded to sort of mere instruments of production where in which children are exploited and the protection of the family is never applied to all classes and the social economical structures. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering how do you as a I know you call yourself a communist writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you relate to communism? Well, I think there are different activist milieus over the last 20 years that developed among young people who wanted to reclaim almost the idea of communization with a small c, (laughs) the commons, the communism of building a sort of a commune form that would have an insurgent in um, potential with with regard to sort of the the totality it's a little bit sort of shocking to people who associate communism purely with the history of you know the soviet bloc and um the disaster that was the soviet experiment really well i mean it's sort of ceased to be an experiment you know and and the history of sort of chinese communism with a capital c what i'm sort of saying when I call myself a communist is sort of hanging on to the dream of which remains unrealized in history right it's not as though I don't think the capital C communisms of nation states that we have known in the 20th century come even close to realizing what the sort of the dream the promise of you know what I would call communism the the idea that everything belongs to everyone. In the UK, there was a sort of moment where young people were quite drawn to the the romance, really, of the, the old phrase from the sort of anti-enclosure movements in Europe, omnia sunt communia, all things are common. I think everything belongs to everyone. And that Latin phrase was actually on a massive banner, you know, in some of the riots and up of student uprisings (laughs) that I was involved in right I think it's important to you know keep the word alive despite its kind of destroyed and dishonored connotations because of precisely the insistence from left communists that we have never known (laughs) communism and uh, it's uh, an insistence on the property form on the value form um, as the the key to much of earthly human suffering. I think in some cases I would say there is little difference in the present between anarchists, anti-state, communists, revolutionary socialists. We're all kind of losing in an intense way. <laughs> but I think it depends. In Germany, I've noticed people didn't do this kind of romantic left anarchist use of the word communism so I always get asked by people in Germany like what the fuck do you mean by that (laughs) I think it also like it's a very loaded past obviously but I also see a very like especially among younger peers I see a very uprising of calling yourselves and being proud of it like communist feminist Mm -hmm. or 
socialist feminists. And I think seeing the problems of, for example, motherhood under capitalism, which basically doesn't leave any room for camaraderie. Also as if there's not really another option. And it's not the communists of Marx and Engels probably, but like an, another form of community making. Yeah, I'm pretty influenced, as I think you probably know, by the um, the autonomist tradition, almost workerist tradition that, that insisted on the anti-work uh, valence within Marx and Engels' texts. And the sort of the feminism of that, for me, is a kind of earlier version of Silvia Federici's politics, the famous in some circles, author of Caliban and the Witch, and who has changed, I think, quite a lot what she says about mothering in the 21st century. In the early 70s, she was pointing to the social factory that was at the sort of the back of the, the supposedly real factory that Marx sort of pulls back the curtain to show us the hidden abode of production is where the encounter between capital and labor takes place. This is part of Marx's method to show that what is supposedly a very free exchange is actually unfree. And I think what the autonomous feminists were doing in the early 70s was going to the back of that room and showing another curtain and saying, look, the household, right, the family is another realm. So it's complicated the words you use because there are endless debates about this because, you know, is it actually production or whatever? But what goes on in the family is crucial to the functioning of capitalism. You can say that much without getting into value form debates, you know? This is so important and it remains just as painful to hear today as it did 50 years ago, I think, because people find it extremely challenging, maybe too challenging, to understand that the sort of activities that feel so pure, wiping the nose of your five-year-old, might have something to do with the market. <laughs> you know, it doesn't feel like it, does it? And people want to trust that story, right, about the family being a refuge from the market. In some partial ways, it is, right? If you're going to speak relatively, Sure, you know, in a relative sense. The really important thing that wages against housework or wages for housework sort of encouraged people to recognize is that calling this love labor work is not to deny that love is involved. It's actually to insist that we could organize this bit differently such that love could be uplifted, expanded, transformed qualitatively you know, aufgehoben for the first time. So if we enjoy spending time with children, teaching them to read or whatever, the elements of joy, the elements of satisfaction that go into that labor, then if we do feel attached to those things, that is precisely why we should seek to abolish the family. <laughs> we should seek to steal back those things from the mechanism that sort of steals them from us in the present. Uh, and orients our products towards exploitation, right? Because what the family produces is workers or good class subjects, you know, like ruling class subjects, capitalist subjects, racially conscious subjects, certainly. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> I don't know where you want to go next. I often find titles of your books and your articles kind of provocative but in a good way. And it's interesting how I notice that people are then surprised that you turn out to be 
a nice person that's open to talk, which is also, is absolutely not your job to be nice or to comfort other people. You say I'm sometimes provocative. It's true that sometimes my titles are chosen by my editors or whatever, and sometimes they're not. And I get it. People always say that there's a provocation or a provocative element. And I, I don't mean to deny that. I love that. I think it's great. It's perfect. It's just, it says so much more about me. I think that's the interesting thing. For example, like when we briefly met for the first time when you were in Berlin, um, when you were talking about the work of Louise Bourgeois at the Martin Bau, And I remember uh, I think the title was Mothering Against Motherhood of your talk. And I remember asking two of my mom friends to join me. And they were like, oh, I'm not sure if this is for me. And I was like, it is for you. It is about you. It's it's like about camaraderie, about momraderie. I think the provocativeness of the title can set people off, which is not your problem at all. And I think it says so much more about how we're not used to thinking about family in different structures because people feel like their identity is being questioned. Yeah, which is also a good thing because it's good to rub on the surface of the status quo in order to change. Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. Of course. I mean, it's a, it's a whole kind of back and forth movement, you know, sort of being willing to upset people and then kind of going into the almost reassuring tone of saying, you know, don't worry, I'm not trying to separate you from your husband <laughs> or your or, beloved, you know, children. beloved children. Yeah, <laughs> There are some of us involved in this politics, resurrecting it in the 21st century. And some of my friends involved in this have taken me to task once or twice for being too kind of nice, I guess, as you put it, you know, <laughs> because it, it depends on your mood or your taste or the room that you're actually in or how whether you think you've under you got through to people on a basic level like I say things if you love the people in your family then you then you should want family abolition for them and that sounds sort of enticing maybe I don't know but uh there is you know there is an element of negativity obviously that I perhaps could almost spend more time on after the provocation of the title has already like scared people because there are elements of this that hurt uh for a good reason you know like because there are things there are forms of attachment and security in this class society that I imagine yes would be sort of uh shifted and unseated in any process of communization, you know, the, the ways that we acquire senses of self and senses of kind of worth and senses of immortality through biogenetic reproduction in the sort of patriarchal parenthood form and the ways that we, we do marriage and monogamy, um, the competitive characteristics that come into most forms of emotional reproduction as Alva Gottby calls it that stuff will hurt to change you know because it it's how we have learned to be you know to experience love in in a way that is tainted by property this was Alexandra Kollontai's analysis she thought really deeply about all human relationships really and how under capitalism they are inflected by property logic she called it property love and she thought that the you know the horizon of red love would be the world in which none of our relations are sort of in competition with one another 
or in a sort of relation of enclosure or exclusion with one another. It sounds complicated. And yet, you know, if we're serious about deprivatization of the commons, we, we will have to look inward in our, our hearts and our attachments as well. On a personal note that I noticed like after becoming a mother myself that I for the first time I felt very how to say let down by my more radical feminist friends to a certain degree where as if I not only sort of how to say like abandoned our dreams sort of our communal dreams of dismantling the system but foremost also as if I sort of abandoned them as if I, I was not longer part of our communal quest, but as if I walked over to the normative nuclear side. And as if, like, you're on your own now. It, like, it, you fell for the trap. Like, it, it's your personal decision and with, like, private problems or something. And I think it goes against everything I think is necessary for change if we talk about intersectional care, if we talk about abolishing the family. And I often, as a mother, I struggle with how I put my own theory or your theory into practice. Where is the much needed village um, beyond the theory? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the place that concretely I, I tend to think about it as growing that kernel that potentially expanding kind of flame <laughs> of family abolition is not actually paradoxically in actually existing kinship groups or private households actually this is what people don't like to hear once again you know especially like if you're a, a liberal magazine editor and you're like okay give me like you know five steps to abolish the family my, myself as a, <laughs> you know, as, a, as a upper middle class yeah um well, which is what actually you know there was a moment in the coronavirus pandemics early you know months and years but in the first year and a half newspaper editors got really interested in the idea of critique of the private nuclear household because all of a sudden everyone's going crazy at home exactly like, oh, wait how can we abolish this yeah exactly but they don't you know but they don't want to hear that it's actually not possible outside of a, a generalized insurrection changing social relations and as a whole you know or aiming to so when, when I think about where the logic can be spotted in the wild I think it's unfortunately the answer is kind of it's in the streets it's when people start to really stay in the streets over large periods of time and start to find ways to reproduce one another physically emotionally materially you know those sorts of experiments and temporary zones that become not temporary or like less temporary you know th those are the sorts of things that I would point to when people learn how to care for the unhoused those with substance sort of use needs and problems those with disparate kinds of backgrounds undocumented documented and come together in a public space and figure out how to democratically look after one another and care for one another to the 
extent that they can stay and continue to struggle and grow richer and richer in needs, which is the phrase of the the national sort of welfare rights organization in the US, or rather the radical wing of that organization and the sort of welfare radicals who have this really nice way of looking at it. Historically, they said that what what happens, you know, you start being together on the street in the ways that I've just described is you you collectively acquire new needs because often in the sort of theoretical traditions that I'm familiar with you talk about desire you know you talk about mass revolutionary or collective desire but I like the different framing that comes about when you talk about the basic needs that a society has when during World War II briefly Um, millions of low-income people were eating in banquet halls with piano music and flowers on the table because there was a kind of state wartime logic to this and it was decreed by the British government that private kitchens are inefficient which is true it remains true outside of the wartime right but um, you know loads of people experienced according to the kind of histories that exist of that time a kind of an enlargement of their sphere of needs, right? If you experience collectivity, you begin to expect certain things as your birthright that you might not have expected before. I think paradoxically in the 21st century with the sort of neoliberal consumption regime that we are in, we think that we have lots of kind of, in overdeveloped countries, greedy and cosseted. And paradoxically, I think... Our sense of what we really need, as opposed to desire, is quite small, it's quite shrunken. With the things that we expect from the public sphere, and obviously it's worse in America, where you you don't get healthcare unless you've bought a private package in advance. I just like thinking about this paradox that in the sort of, in a society where you can pay for everything and have everything under the sun you you don't really think about what your needs in the same way that you might when I'm talking about expanding needs I'm imagining that through struggle you start to recognize collectively hey like free food three times a day should be is something I need it's not something I dream of it's a basic principle you know free housing these sorts of things were operative in struggles in South Africa among the sort of shantytown dwelling movement Balahli Basim Jondolo, they were talking about housing as a, a human right. Human rights are things we need. So there's an interesting perspective shift, I think, when you look at utopianism, not as a kind of process of looking on the horizon for a beautiful, perfect society that we can design almost colonially from scratch, but actually as a method of resisting the naturalization of certain kind of arrangements of need in the present and saying no together we we will refuse that you know a method of negation and attempt to create care infrastructures that go against the property love of the present and orient towards a kind of red love so I think unfortunately I don't know the answer to your question about you know your personal life although I think about my life and people's lives a lot I don't know how in a sort of voluntaristic way outside of a context of high intensity social struggle significant changes can be made unfortunately 
But I do think we should practice comradely mothering, right? Sort of mothering that creates subjects that are maximally autonomous and not sort of functions of ourselves. Because that's what I think love is about struggling that another will be maximally immersed in care to the extent that it is available in this world and at the same time be autonomous to the extent that is possible. Care and autonomy are really sort of finely interwoven principles. They are often treated as in conflict and in tension with one another. And I think that perhaps there are sort of ways in which they sometimes come into tension with one another. But I think we can only have care with autonomy and we can only have autonomy with care. Your latest book, Manifesto of Care and Liberation, where you touch on both of these subjects, the importance also of freedom and liberation within a care context. I was wondering how, as an academic, as a writer, to talk and write about something so privately, like your relationship to your biological mother within an academic framework of theory. How was sharing the loss with such a broad audience how did that shape you as a writer or as a thinker yeah I don't know if I would have done that had I thought that I would pursue a properly academic career trying to get an academic job because really by that by the time my mother died at the end of 2019 I was fairly set on a path that I've continued now of being a precarious freelancer I do have a visiting scholar title of some kind but it doesn't come with a contract or anything so I'm really actually a writer outside of the academy I think maybe that's really genuinely part of the explanation kind of realizing that I didn't want to be part of knowledge production in the sorts of norms of academia yeah it's tricky when you become a bit notorious in the ways that you were indicating with provocative titles and anger on a you know Tucker Carlson the US sort of far-right pundit got angry at me at one point and there are sort of periodically that's the Fox News right exactly Fox News was angry at me at one point and periodically I suppose people are representing me in the ways that they understand me to there are lots of understandings of me that have nothing to do with what I actually say but in that context yeah talking about my grief for my biological mother my mother my official the one mother I think she like many people would benefit from many mothers she certainly had a lot of transgenerational inherited familial trauma that's why I dedicated the paperback reissue of Full Surrogacy now to her sort of saying that her life was a really good way of illustrating why a lot of people need family abolition because instead of the sort of loneliness and hopelessness and you know anti-utopian sort of shrinking of horizons that a lot of people experience inside private nuclear households as wives for example we could imagine doing things differently in infrastructures, architectures of sort of feminist abundance. People have imagined feminist architectures where neighborhoods have massive communal kitchens rather than private kitchens. And while you could still use a private kitchen to cook for your friends if you wanted to, because a lot of us take pleasure in that, we would never have to imagine that it is up to us to provide three meals a day for ourselves or anybody else alone. Imagine how different it would be, you know, for loads of people. 
if it was just taken as read that your physical needs for shelter, for food, for healthcare, for leisure, for, you know, therapy, for entertainment were sort of basic baselines, you know, rather than things that you had to work in order to be able to afford to consume privately as a consumer. But, you know, my mom was a sort of German 1968er, only had children very, very late, like at the last second, you know, at the age of 42. And I don't think it's painful for me in any way to reflect almost as a comrade to her that it didn't really go well, that decision for her. I mean, I'm glad I exist, but I don't think many people have a good time of motherhood on conventional terms. Of course, a lot has changed over the last few decades in terms of the overdeveloped economies, gender division of labor, but not enough, not nearly enough. It remains radically gendered the way that household labor is organized. And so you have two income households in heterosexual unions, couples, where one partner, the feminized one, is nevertheless doing disproportionately more the so-called second shift, right? And that's miserable. But even if you were to make it perfectly equal, this heterosexual marriage situation, if you were somehow to make it perfectly equal, it's still lonely and a way of organizing impunity, really, for perpetrators of abuse within that unit. It's ecologically a little insane to kind of reproduce people in these little couple form cells and boxes over and over and over again. And the list goes on. In the 60s and 70s, it used to be quite normal to point out that the overwhelming amount of child sexual abuse and rape takes place in this structure. And it's not just that it takes place there. It is impossible to prosecute, really. I mean, it remains very difficult, very difficult within a marriage to, ima you know, to imagine justice for a survivor of their own spouse or their own parent. The way breaking up with your parent is called emancipating, which is an intense kind of word because it's the same word that slaves used. You could compare these sorts of stories to the stories about Johnny Depp, the abusive sort of boyfriends and husbands in our celebrity pantheon who are often heroized and believed over their victims in the same way. Because family is, I think, in large part, actually, I know this sounds maybe a little counterintuitive to people who see family as a refuge and a sanctuary. The family is also a way to give a sort of prerogative to abuse to some of us, because it's an important safety valve for those who are going to suffer abuse in the wage labor sphere. And children and wives, as Engels, Babel and others sort of said, are there to soak up the after effects, the collateral damage of that other abuse. They're the kind of second ones down the chain who soak it up. And murder as well. For women, the majority, the most likely way that you will get murdered if you get murdered is by a family member or by a spouse. The book I'm writing right now about the politicalization and retraditionalization of family values, so to say, like spiked enormously during and after the pandemic, the same as femicide, for example. I was 
thinking like rethinking family critiques. It's also happening on one hand, you see, let's say on the more sort of liberal left, there's a whole lot of rethinking about family structures. On the other hand, you see at the right wing, you see politicians conquering parliaments, governments, considering, for example, like how the German AFD or Dutch PFD combined nationalism and fear with family protection. So against, for example, vaccinations, testing of children, all in short to protect a child. And I was wondering, do you see your work where like what we said, there's so much work being done in the 60s, 70s, 80s, if you talk about labor, but also thinking about socialism, communism, but also on the traditional values of family. There's a new, and especially after the pandemic, the families at stake on many sides. I was wondering if you see your work and these sort of uprisings, both on the left and on the right, as a two sides of the same coin. Interesting. Yes, it's no surprise that you're struggling for clarity in the framing of this because it's really complex. The moral panics that arise historically around the figure of the the child or the, the figuration of child innocence are always actually, in complex ways, it's difficult to distill socioeconomic phenomena. They have to do with a certain kind of convulsion in class society, the organization of social reproduction going through some kind of transition. There was a child sex abuse moral panic, I mean, a fantasized one, as opposed to the real one that should exist about families, you know, which never exists really. It's always a, a predatory other. There was a child sexual abuse panic in the 80s, famously in the US, around. Uh, daycare centers and satanic single women uh, in the workplace were the sort of operative kind of catalyst for this. Women were sort of entering certain spheres of the formal workplace in new numbers. And this has kind of been convincingly traced by some historians as the sort of the material context for certain kinds of bizarre sort of paranoid mass conspiracy theories about what is going on with children at the hands of queer leftist satanist pedophiles right this happened in the 80s it happened around basically gay life earlier in the century and it is happening now around trans liberation and so I think the answer to your question yes I think my work is part of a growing tendency perhaps the flip side of the coin of the the far right sort of challenge to the sanctity of parental rights and the sort of property love at the core of parental domination, the sanctity of that, something I completely reject. I think the nexus that this is operating on is gender freedom. Across Europe, we have mobilizations against gender. I think gender in particular, though, and trans gender, trans liberation and trans bodily autonomy for children. The question of bodily autonomy might include not only, for example, gestational autonomy. Maybe it sounds to you like I'm making too big of a claim, but I do think that the figure of the trans child is the central operative one in the battle that you're kind of alluding to with familists and trad wives and eugenicist sort of natalist fascists on the one hand 
and trans Marxian family abolitionists and children's liberationists on the other, I guess. But I really wanted to thank you for your writing. It's been really nice for me. I'm getting lots of invitations to come to Germany. I might be able to come and have tea with you if you are interested. Yes, I would love to. Thank you so much for listening all the way to the end. It means a lot. For more episodes of this podcast and to find out more about my upcoming book on family and care, please follow us online and subscribe via the link in bio.